Hello. Hello. Jarrett, and I'm an addict. I'm forever thirsty, which explains why I'm here in the first place. I took a lot of I had to run. I apologize. Welcome to the newcomers. I had to run to the restroom. I don't know, but my thirst has my thirst for other things has brought me and put me in a really bad spot in my life. That's why I'm here. I'm here to share my story. Um, kind of give you give you a outlook of what this looks like, what this journey for me has been like. And you know, I like what the the opening readings about if someone's still suffering. Like if you have a desire, you know, you're tired of suffering. I feel that's that's really comforting. Um, so I'm the type of person who's always thirsty. Um, let's see here. My sobriety, well, let me just get started. My sobriety date's January 1st, 2019. I'm grateful for that date. Um, thank you so much for being my 10 minute. I love you both. <laughs> and thank you, Eric, for asking me. So um, my addiction takes me weird places. Let's see, I've lost 10 good jobs from being thirsty and, uh, you know, trying to get my hands on a lot of things. I've been banned from like this famous punk rock bar in Chicago. Um, I was banned by the owner who said I was too electric. So I don't know, people find that funny. Like when I, cause I'm, I, I, you know, I was, I'm the type of person who leaves a card open and then there's no money on that debit card cause I have a tab open. And you know, they're closing out their tabs. It's like, oh, well this is denied. But then I come back as like, hey, sorry. And they're like, no, this is good, you know, whatever. You're not just, you're not welcome here. Um, I've been kicked out of like a good seven places once I had a police escort. And I never thought I had a problem. So a little bit about me, I'm from the South side of Chicago, born and raised. And I was born to a really good family. So my dad always stressed education and being proper and, you know, doing the right thing. He was a, a man of great integrity, a man of amazing values. And he taught me a lot. And coming up, I was heavily teased. I never fit into a spot, kind of like the stories I hear, you know, in the rooms. It's like, you know, I never fit in into a space. I was teased heavily. People always will say things like, oh, you're talking white. It's like, what? <laughs> or because, I, you know, I never played basketball with the other Black children and stuff like that. I was more of a computer nerd and a geek and a loner. And, I recall the school principal asking my mom, like, hey, is your son a loner? He's kind of weird. And like my mom, like, you know, it was things like that where even like people in places that should be helping really didn't because I was just so different and out there, I guess. But I wouldn't say looking back, I, I think it was, I was just, I am who I am. You know, it's one thing looking back in my program. It's one thing to be status quo, but you know, we're all different in our own unique kind of way. So coming up, I didn't feel good enough, of course. Um, I never fit in with other kids. So I just stayed to myself. I played video games. I chatted with strangers on the internet. I got into computer hacking. Um, and I had like behavioral problems in school. So like that started like around fifth grade, whatever. I didn't care about doing my homework. It was just dumb. And, you know, I get put in the hallway a lot because I talk a lot. So that was one of those things. And then I got, I went to high school, junior high, high school. That was really lame. I got beat up for no reason. People were bullying me all the time. I dreaded school, but I did get good grades. So eventually I graduated high school um, and I was off to college. And that's kind of when I started drinking. 
I was 17. So I look older than I am. I always came off as older as I am. So there was a gas station in Chicago that sold me booze because I would just go in. And I had this thought one night, it was this bright idea that I'm going off to college. I'm going to learn how to drink because I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be amazing. I'm going to know how to hold my liquor and I'm going to be popular in college because none of this other shit worked in. They don't know me. So I'm going to like reinvent myself and assume this new identity per se. So I did just that. So I started drinking. <laughs> um, I would drink in my room. So I would get like some Bacardi gold and um, some Hennessy. I don't know why people were, I hear about it in rap songs. So I thought that was cool. You sip it on some Hennessy with some ice. And thinking, I don't know. And I'm doing all this like while my parents slept. And I got like that first time I had a drink, it was like nasty. But then it was just like, damn, I've been missing out on this. It was just like, whew. And I know like the big book talks about this idea of ease and comfort. I was just like too chill. And it was like, it felt so amazing. I was like, I've really been missing out on this. Cause I knew like in high school, there was gang bangers and stuff, you know, they did drugs and sold and stuff like that. And, um, you know, they spoke weed and drank and I never, you know, I was being like, I was really good. And like my moral compass was like, oh no, I won't do that. And, and stuff. So I never really understood what the whole appeal was about until I had that first drink. And, from there, it was a thing. It was my thing. I've been missing out and I'm going to make up lost time. So because of I was going to college, what happened was I wanted to work. And since I was like 15, I had this interest in fashion and art and design. So what I started doing is I, this is back in the day where blogging was kind of new, I'm kind of aging myself. I'm not that old, but, <laughs> but blogging was kind of new. So anybody could have an opinion and kind of write stuff. So I started doing that because I was always on the computer, of course, and I was always, you know, in my own fields and lonely. So I started blogging and one thing led to another. I kind of built a portfolio of writing. So I lied about my age and I started working for this fashion magazine and I started doing, I became a fashion stylist. So I was signed with Philippe Model Management as a fashion, fashion stylist. And I would start doing shoots and going to retailers and pulling clothing and going to Barney's New York and Saks Fabio and pulling things. And my dad was very supportive because at the time I didn't know that like most stylists, they have a, they have a business and they just call. And anyway, I was using my dad's credit card to buy this stuff. So I was doing that. One thing led to another. And I started working for this British magazine. And with that opened a lot of doors to allow me to drink and use. So fashion week, all the models are skinny. Everyone smokes parliament. So that's why I started smoking parliament because all the models would smoke parliament because they sniff coke to stay skinny and there's a recessed filter. So that just became my thing. I'm like, oh, this is cool. So my first cigarette is actually parliament. How cool is that? I feel really hipster. But um, so I'm going to fashion week. I would go like twice a year because they have it like September, February, New York fashion week. And then I would go to London. And all those times I'm going to all these parties the ideal is the assumption is people, most people in positions like that are adults and, you know, there's no, I no carding or anything. And when you're in New York, no one really cares. If you look the part you're getting in, you know, so no one ever ID'd me. I never really been ID'd by anybody and being at these parties and being this is booze everywhere. Champagne here, there's open bar here, there's this and that. And I was like, I have arrived. This was my jam. I loved it so much. And that just facilitated my drinking in the sense that um, there was nobody to stop me. You know, my mom was like, you're not going to New York. And I had a buddy from high school pick me up in the middle of the night and like take me to the airport. 
So I kind of like ran off to New York and I thought that was the coolest thing. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. So with this drinking um, and using, so I was working for the magazine. I got them on, back in the day we had bookstores. So there was Barnes and Noble's Borders. I got them on the stands, this and that. And my using and drinking started escalating where I was calling the, the owner drunk as fuck, yelling at him. Cause he'd be like, hey Jared, where's your article? We're gonna go to the press. We need to have stuff. I'm like, don't fucking tell me what that did. And it was just a hot mess. So unfortunately like things fell through the cracks. They couldn't have me. And I don't know, they went out of business anyway, but that wasn't my fault. <laughs> that wasn't my fault, but that was kind of speaking towards the unmanageability from like the very start. And I was like around 20, 19, 20 at this point. Fast forward, I'm in college because I'm still like trying to do balance college and do all this other random stuff. So I don't know how I did it, but I graduate college. I did a double major. Um, I graduate and I start working for an internship. So I start my internship and it's in um, a media company. So little known to me, media is very wet. You know, you work very hard, but you play harder. So we had a bar in the office. There was a bar in the office. The fridges were fully stocked and people, you know, I'm a little different. I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know I had an issue, but people usually will like grab one beer after work and they'd be like, you, you know, I finished my, my day. I finished this major project. I'm just a little team building event with, you know, a few beers. Me, I would stay late in the office. Sometimes I'll, I would work hard, but I'll be in the office drinking. I would go into the, into the bars, start pouring drinks, like, you know, helping myself. And this continued and it started to affect me. Um, yeah, I lost that job. I'm the, I'm the call off, the queen of call off. <laughs> you know, I'm the type, cause I worry about what people think when I get plastered, I don't show up. I don't want you to smell it on me. I don't want you to see me. I don't want any questions asked. So me trying to say face <laughs> leaves me to not showing up at my job. So it was always the same story. Every time I got fired, it was like, well, we like you, but you're never here. And one thing led to another. So, Finished that job, I relocated to San Francisco. Let me see how I'm looking at time. Relo relocated to SF. Same thing continued. I'm living with roommates, it escalates. Same thing, partying, going out, nothing really matters. I'm ho barely holding on to a job out of skin my teeth. And by the, this time, it's more, I'm less of a weekend warrior and more on like whenever during the week in the morning, at night, whenever I feel like drinking and using, I'm gonna do it. So I, will, I was never really into weed, but my neighbors, cause I'm, I'm in California, so you know, you're smelling weed everywhere, everyone does it. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm smoking with my neighbor and they're, you know, they may have an alcoholism problem or a problem with substances, but I think they were used heavily, but I would take it so far where sometimes people would be like, hey, we're gonna call it a night, you need to go home. So it's like people, I started to reduce myself, saying low battery here, but I started to reduce myself. So to like, and seek out people who use like me, 
because normal people, they'd be like, no, this is too excessive for us. We can't, we got to be somewhere tomorrow or like, no, my kids are coming, you know, I got to go pick them up. I can't be too blah, blah, or, hey, I got to work tomorrow, you know, or I got this to do. So it's like, okay, you're not a good, I'll stop talking to you. You're not my friend anymore. I need to find somebody else who can hang. So this continues in SF, I lose my job, lose my shirt, lose everything, get kicked out of a few places. And before I come back to Chicago, what that looks like, oh, I got into a relationship. Uh, I'm gay, so I was like, it's just funny. I started dating this other guy who's alcoholic. It was fabulous. <laughs> so we would take each other out. We'll like alternate. So he'll be plastered one day and I'm like carrying him home and he's falling in the street. And then the other day, like other days, I'll be so fucked up. He got to carry me home and take me home and all that. But it got bad. We started like getting into physical fist fights and stuff. And we'll be drunk like... <laughs> We both had black eyes and it got really abusive and really nasty and we weren't helping each other. So we split. And in that split, I moved into this motel in San Francisco. It was called the Islander. Very fun East Bay. And there, because I love people and I love people, I want people to love me and like me. So there was a lot of tweaker action, <laughs> noodle grooving happening. And friend of mine told me, do not open your door. Do not talk to anybody there. This is the most seediest motel in the area. You need to stay there until you find a roommate situation. What do I do? I get drunk and I'm talking to everybody. And there's a person with a cookie smoking. And then there's like, I'm drinking. I'm just drinking and sipping and sniffing a little something. And before I know it, I get robbed. There was a transsexual and this muscular bodybuilder in my room and I fell asleep, like I passed, I blacked out. So I wake up to like this jail dildo, which was like a plunger with a towel on top with my wallet stolen, my phone stolen, everything's gone. And I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. This is a wake up call. So with that, I go to Wells Fargo. It takes them like 30 minutes to verify me because, you know, they got to ask all these questions and stuff to be like, is it really me? Get some money and I go get a drink. You know, that's the first thing I do because I'm stressed. Oof, that was a rough night. So anyway, um, I go back to this CD hotel and I still, I'm still barely holding on to the job. And at this point, I'm a temp. So anyway, I was washing my clothes for the next day in the motel. They decided to lock the laundry room. So all my clothes are in there and I didn't have anything to wear for the morning. And I missed work and I got fired that day. So fly back to Chicago, same thing happens. Living with parents, you know, I go, what we say in these rooms, we go back to mom, we call mom. <laughs> you like, help me. <laughs> you know, I'm doing all right, but things are a little not, not as favorable. So come back to Chicago. Um, Eventually, I get my own spot. So in my thinking, because I'm an addict, I was making really good money at this job. I started there. So I build my life up, like the big book says, and right before like an important engagement or something, I tear it all down with no explanation. So I'm kind of paraphrasing, you know, the future is bright, but I tear it all down right in front of everybody else. And everybody's just questioning, like, what the hell is wrong with me? So in my head, I move into this apartment in the hood because what better reason I'm going to save money, I'm going to have more money in my pocket, and I'll be able to drink like I want to. So I'm purposely living in a really seedy neighborhood because I want to save money. And things get really bad. Things get really, really bad. Um, I'm drinking every day. I'm drinking hard alcohol because that's what 
what I do. I don't drink beer. I don't drink wine. I go straight for the hard alcohol and I drink it straight out the bottle. And I sleep next to it. So when I wake up, I have it right there and I'm shaking and this and that. So I get introduced into crack because my neighbors smoke crack and what better thing? So I have some crack and I'm like, oh my God, I've been missing out. <laughs> so like I'm living this double life where I'm like corporate America by day and then like crack whore at night. <laughs> and I'm ghetto and I'm being acting all ghetto and shit in this crack house and trap house and these game bangers and there's shootings happening and all this fun stuff. And it, it, it just became too much. And I remember one day I was just, I don't know what happened that day, but I was drinking and I was just exhausted. And I was like, this is enough. I really need help. I really, really need help. And I, I just leaned, I vomited and it was orange or red. I'm not sure if that was blood or the Gatorade I drank. <laughs> Cause I would plan my drinking. I would like buy Gatorade. I'll buy some Amy soup because it's organic and healthy. And then I also have my, my alcohol and, and I'll make some phone calls later for other things. So with that, I, I just vomited over that toilet. I was like, God, help me. And I remember being in my room those lonely nights. I became very paranoid. I became really like this feeling of impending doom and calamity. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, Bill's story, Lest I Leap, you know. I remember peeing the mattress many times, waking up in sweats, the hot, cold thing going on. I remember feeling so lonely and empty and like, I don't know, like I just felt so miserable and empty where I would listen to AA speaker tapes and watch people on YouTube talk about how they got better and listen to like smart recovery meetings because they were online at the time just for like comfort and just wish that I wish I could get it together and be happy like these people who were talking and kind of put it down. And I would just watch all these things on YouTube just to feel better. And I remember talking to a friend who also got into crack and he went to treatment out here. So he was telling me about this treatment center. He was like, hey, Jerry, you should go there because I went there and I got a little bit better. And, you know, it was really nice and I think you'll like it there. So I was like, okay. So I called them, you know, made my arrangements. I moved out of uh, um, that CD apartment I was in. My mom sold all, you know, all the, I didn't have that much stuff anyway, that little small ass apartment, you know, things suddenly get up and go when you're in addiction. But I didn't have that much stuff anyway. I didn't have a TV. I had my router, I had to return to Comcast. Um, but I just had small stuff like a table, a pissed out mattress. Anyway, got rid of all that crap and I, I came out here. And when I came here, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything about 12 steps. I was like in this room because my treatment center brought me here. That's how I know the friendship center. I got sober in this room. And I would come to these meetings and be sitting and relax all the way in the back, like, okay, everybody's so happy and shit. And, you know, keep coming back and then all these positive things, all these tiles. It's kind of cool. They're all full now, but it was like some spaces left the last time I was here, but all this stuff. And I'm like, why is everybody so chipper? And I was pissed off and I'm mad. And I, I felt like people were, it was ingenuine. Like it was fake. Cause I never knew that this way of life and getting sober and becoming recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body was a thing. I had no idea. I never knew what that would look like. I didn't think it was a possibility to be and recover from being so hopeless and so sick and so mentally ill and all the other isms that, that kind of come along with my using. So I kept coming to these meetings because treatment of course brought me. And I was, I was upset at first, but then I became, I, what changed and what started to happen was I started to become very curious. I was really curious as to why people were so happy. 
because I started to see that it was genuine. Like you can't fake happiness all the, you know what I mean? It started to seem genuine because I would see the same people at meetings. I was like, okay, well that person was pretty, there, there's a consistency to like how they're acting and how they're talking and this and that. And people at meetings started to, you know, uh, their personality stayed the same week in, week out. And I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. These, maybe these people are really happy. So I kind of stuck around um, in treatment, of course, the phase up, I had to get a sponsor. So lo and behold, I'm here at the Friendship Center at the 4.30 on Sunday meeting. I'm not sure if they still have that. That's a different fellowship, but it was a big speaker meeting. And this one guy was thinking his birthday. He had like 30 years or whatever. He's right here. The newcomer is the most important person in the room. So I'm sitting right there and there's a lady sitting next to me and it's a big crowded room. And I'm like, you know, he's talking, he's calling on people and people are sharing. Um, and I'm like trying to raise my hand because I need to phase up. So I'm like, okay, let me raise my hand, try to get a sponsor. I'm scared. Kind of like how you were like, gotta come up here. It's intimidating, yeah. But but I'm just, I'm over there trying to raise my hand in this corner right here next to where that little black thing, that cushion is right there, I'm sitting right there. And he's calling on this old timer and this. So I start bitching to the lady next to me. I'm like, he's come up, newcomer's the most important person in the room. Hello, I'm trying to raise my hand, I need a sponsor. So her name was Megan and she was like, oh, you need a sponsor? Well, this guy sponsors. So directly by the door across the room, my sponsor was sitting there. My sponsor, my current sponsor was sitting there. And I was like, hmm, okay. So I started watching him throughout the meeting and he laughs so heavily. You know, he's kind of older, he, you know, my sponsor, he's like Santa Claus. Um, so he has this beard, white hair. He's just like, ha ha, big cheeks. And he is so damn happy. And I was like, just watching him. Cause I was gonna ask him after the meeting, like if he could be my sponsor, but like, I remember some guidance was given to me when I came in here. They were like, ask somebody who has what you want. And I thought that was like, kind of that meant something material, like a Benz or, you know, a Rolex and Blaine or something, you know, there's a wealthy group around here. So I'm like, okay, let me, let me, maybe this could lead to a job or something. <laughs> but looking in hindsight, I didn't know something that I want as to like, something that will sustain my spirituality, something that could probably sustain my soul and help me heal. You know, we talk about like that reading talked about suffering. I was suffering. So I watched this guy throughout the meeting. He's laughing so hard. And it was like, I want to laugh like that. So after the meeting, I did. We went through this door and I'm smoking. And I go up to him and I asked him, hey, I'm new. Um, I need a sponsor. Would you like to sponsor me? He's like, call me tomorrow. You know, he has a very distinct voice. And that's what I did. You know, I, I don't know. I was just really... Um, I wouldn't say I was excited for the program, but I didn't know anything else to do. You know, going from being in bed all day, every day, crying in my bed at back home because people are going to work and I'm just in my room with the, the shades closed and just drinking and I can't stop and I'm going to the crack house and I can't stop and I'm taking out money I don't have and doing all these weird things. It, it, it just became so much. And to come here and kind of see that there's some type of hope and I was in the midst of it, I was just kind of motivated to like do whatever he said. You know, the, the question is sometimes, are you willing to go to any length to stay sober and clean? And it was like, I didn't say yes at the time, but I was like interested. So I started going through the steps with him. He would meet up with me at my, my treatment center and we just got started. We started 
through the front of the book, we went through the history, we went through the preferences, the forwards, because he stressed the importance that if I'm going to do a program, I, I should probably know about the history of it and, you know, how this program started, what's the beginning of it. And then we just started going, taking turns reading and he will pause, we'll go over the material. And I really love my sponsor because he, and this is the way I kind of work with others in the sense that I want them, this is my program, like this is the program, but it has to, I have to relate to that. Like, you know, we do, I did a self-diagnosis. My sponsor told me he's not gonna call me a, an addict, alcoholic, but I need to determine that for myself. I need to look at my track record. You know, have I ever had to? No, I thought I would have to, you know, that was my intent, but that's not how any, that's never how it went. When I have two, that ends up closing the bar down. I'm there till two in the morning. And then I go to a four in the morning bar in Chicago, up north or wherever I need to be. So it's like that track work. I did my self-diagnosis and yes, I'm a real alcoholic. I'm a real addict, you know? I can't stop if there's a sufficient reason. I don't know how. I don't have the power. I lost the choice. You know, I lost any any choice. So we go through the book, um, and I just hung in there. I didn't know what, like spirituality and all that seemed very mysterious to me like everybody talking about their higher power and this and that and it was like my sponsor kind of broke it down and what really helped was in the big book like that spiritual experience appendix number two in the back because that helped me because essentially what that says was like reading the big book I had this idea of like, oh, everybody, I'm going to get like this God conscious and everything's just going to magically change. And that appendix number two, spiritual experience, this referenced a few times, this little asterisk at the bottom. And he was like, okay, we're going to flip to the back. And we read that. And what that told me was, you know, um, I'm probably of the educational variety where it takes time for me to, to heal. It takes time for me to be restored to saying, it takes time for me to develop a conscious contact with my higher power. You know, so I did have a concept, but it's still like developing. Every day there's something kind of new being revealed. It's kind of like a feedback loop in the sense that my faith grows even more powerful. And I know, and I kind of can tap into that knowing that like I'm safe and protected, I'm loved. And even though I thought my life was absolutely miserable, like everything was actually okay. I made my life miserable. It's like whatever's happening up here, you know, I couldn't tell the true from the false. I thought everything was horrible, but I was safe and protected the entire time. I recall I was walking home from the crack house and it was like a shooting. I could have been in there, I could be dead, but I'm here. So that's safe and protection. Even though I was like roughed up a little bit, I still came in one piece and I'm able to get better and, and share what that looks like and kind of pass that on today. Um, so it was from that appendix that really gave me that aha moment of, I need to take it easy on myself because I'm the planner. I'm the type of thinker that I want to understand what all this means. I need to know it now. This is really, it's not concrete. These are like conceptual ideas that take, it's, it's action. It takes action. It takes practice. And it's part, we all have a different journey with it. Like my, what my journey is, is completely different from anyone else's journey. And I could definitely say that with a fact, like, me and you are not going to have the same journey or face the same things day to day. 
is like what I do with this, how this makes my life look. And once I understood that, I was like, it kind of took off all this anxiety of like, I need to do this, I need to do that in the program, or I should be doing this. Cause I'm, I would compare myself a lot to people who can make 10 meetings a week versus like, oh, I only made, you know, at the beginning, like five or so. And I'd be like, oh no, I'm gonna drink. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's not the thought. That's not the point of how many meetings you make. It's like, how, how much am I believing in my higher power? You know, so me comparing myself to someone else's program, that's, that's it's erroneous in the sense that I'm not them. So I was, I had to knock that off. And then I had to go through, you know, working with my sponsor, I did some inventory. I had to look at my past. I need to, you know, uncover and discard. And then I did a fifth step, which was odd. <laughs> it was kind of funny because my sponsor was like, me too. And I was like, ah, because <laughs> I thought I was so crazy and like broken and, you know, jaded and broken goods. But it was just hearing like that me too. And also hearing people's stories in the room from the fellowship that kind of made me feel like I wasn't alone. And that was a big piece of what kept me coming back because I could talk to you. I could talk to, I just met, you know, met you and I could hear people's story and just totally get it, you know? And I don't think that's found anywhere else really. We have a fellowship within AA compared to a world that has no culture. And we come here, even though we're so different, we just hear something and we can all relate to it. And it all makes sense to us. It's like this, you know, this God conscious. I like that because like looking into our psychology, there's this, this concept of like um, collective consciousness and like in which everyone kind of has like a way of understanding a higher power in some type of way, be it nature or be it, you know, God or whatever, there's like, it's built, kind of built into us, but I can come in this room and kind of, you know, resonate with all of you. So now I shared that with my sponsor in my fifth step. He gave me a list of character defects, but there's more to be revealed. Like my higher power shows me my character defects. Because before I didn't know what I was doing. I was just going in the auto drive. But now I'm able to be aware of things because of my inventory. I was able to tell, look at my roadmap and see like, okay, this is coming up. Uh-oh, jealousy, rejection, fear. It's all fear-driven. Fears are powerful. And it's kind of funny, like knowing, being in the program is like, the using and the bottles, they say it's just a symptom of like what's actually happening in here. So it's like, it goes beyond actually the substance, like a, some booze could be right here, but it's harmless unless I have it. So it's been, it's been really interesting. And I never thought I would like get to this level of comfort, like that ease and comfort that I used to get from the bottle and just being broken and trying to forget everything and escape is like, I just feel fully sustained in these rooms. And I'm forever grateful for that. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of interesting how it played out. I'd never expected that something like this would be possible. I never knew that the program could work for me. I never, and it just kind of sort of happened. I just kind of hung in there. I did what was told, did what I, I had to do, you know? And don't get me wrong, not everything is easy. Like I still live life on life's terms, shit happens, but I know that I don't have to drink nor use over it today. You know, I have a solution. And if I don't know, I'll ask one of you because we all have solution, <laughs> you know, from one day to any other day. So if you're new, please get a sponsor. Just hang in there. 
these steps are very helpful. Don't be afraid of them. They look scary and weird, but you know, it's a step for a reason. It's kind of like one step at a time. And I remember, I do remember my sponsors like, you're going to sponsor someday. I'm like, oh, hell no, I won't. I don't have anything to tell anybody, but that's like when I first started, but it's kind of like with the steps, you kind of ease into them. You know, it's like an acquired taste. Like at first I hated sushi, now I'm all about it. <laughs> so it's kind of like, now I feel fancy. So it's like, you know, it's kind of one of those things like a food or, oops. So that's just been my, oh, I don't know how you use my phone. Okay, there we go. So yeah, that's been my experience with the steps. Thank you so much again, Eric, for asking me to come out and speak. And I hope someone took something from that. Thanks a lot. Yeah.